You did feel you were in the spy capital of the world, and you did feel you were very much at the center of the Cold War. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Welcome to episode 34 of Cold War Conversations. I do hope you are enjoying the content and please leave reviews on iTunes or alternative podcast platforms and share us on social media. It helps raise the profile and helps get us some new guests. Today we talk with Sammy, who as a native West Berliner describes growing up in the city during the 1970s and 80s. He describes in detail the difference between West Berlin and West Germany, including its position as a special political entity, how the death penalty in West Berlin was only abolished in 1989, and how, as a child, he was obsessed with spy movies, spy books and Cold War activities. Before we go further, I'd like to thank all our Patreons who donate monthly to support the podcast further and get access to some exclusive extras. Luke Wooler is our latest Patreon, who pay as little as a pound or a dollar a month to help keep us broadcasting and expanding the show. Just go to the website at coldwarconversations.com and click on the Support the Podcast menu option. Okay, so back to today's episode. Sammy also talks about the battle between the East and West German Sandmenschen, resulting in victory for the East. Sammy joined the Red Cross post-Cold War and discovered some interesting remnants of preparedness in case of another Berlin blockade, including some top-secret locations. I'm sure you will enjoy his account, and I am delighted to welcome Sammy to Cold War Conversations. Sammy, welcome to Cold War Conversations. Thank you very much for uh, coming on the podcast. Thank you, Ian. I'm really interested to hear your story because you've probably seen on the podcast I've had a lot of the view from East Germany, but your point of view is particularly interesting because it's the view uh, West Berlin. So could you just tell me a little bit about your childhood and growing up in West Berlin? Yeah, sure. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's also very interesting to kind of put that together a little bit with what we've heard from the East, but also what we've heard from some of the service members uh, from the Allied forces in, in some of your previous podcasts. So I, I think your listeners are probably familiar with the fact that Berlin was really not a normal place. But of course, when you grow up in it, a place just seems to you, well, you know, that's normal life. So um, Berlin was not technically a part of the Federal Republic uh, in as much as, for example, the GDR didn't consider it to be part of, of, of uh, Germany. It was a special, um, I think they called it a political entity, special self-dependent political entity of, of West Berlin, I think. Mm-hmm. And this special status or the history of the city was kind of permeating 
your youth in, in many ways as well. So you'd have a lot of traces of the Second World War still around you. Um, the other day I just walked past my primary school and uh, I could see the bullet holes have gone. So they've, you know, kind of took 50 years or so uh, to remove the traces of the, of the Second World War yeah. uh, from the school. And a lot of the things that were going on in school, stories from the teachers were very colored by the post-war years, um, the uh, 1953, 17th of June, uh, and the blockade. So right from a very early age, you were kind of made aware you're living on this island of freedom, surrounded by the sea of communism in a way. And and were you conscious of, or were there people around you who had come over from the East before the wall was, was built? Before the wall? Yeah. I'm not sure. I don't, I don't think people would have necessarily mentioned that. Right. So... No, I'm not. I'm not really aware of that. There were in secondary school. There were quite a few who kind of uh, whose parents came over after the wall was mm-hmm. built uh, legally. So you could you could apply to leave East Germany, and then you would uh, set yourself up for a very unpleasant process that could last several years and could be denied. Um, could end up with you in prison all kinds of difficulties, but quite a number of people did manage to leave the country legally. They were kind of, uh, legally, sorry, they were kind of bought by West Germany from the East Germans. Yeah, and were these people who weren't necessarily skilled like doctors or or people like that? They were people that the East Germans weren't overly fussed about leaving? Yeah, I I think on the one hand those, and on the other hand there were those who were highly educated but who... East Germany was quite happy to see the back off. So, um, you know, there was a girl in my class in secondary school whose, te- whose parents were both university professors and they were obviously quite difficult in the Eastern times. And so it was something between being expelled and leaving the country in, in their case. But of course, you're always aware of the stories of people coming over the wall illegally and, and, and kind of getting killed or making it or managing to escape somehow. And and the West Berlin media was also kind of playing that up. Uh, you saw, you know, rescue equipment at the canal kind of put in a position to allow you to help somebody who's kind of made it into the canal um, to come out on the Western side and all these things. Okay. Okay. And what, what were your teachers like at school were they um of a were some of them of a left-wing persuasion or or not um i suspect most of my certainly primary school teachers were much more on the conservative side so for them the enemy was clearly the east and i I don't think this was any kind of directed political indoctrination because my my main primary school teacher i still talk to her today and she holds these views and she has these experiences, uh, personal experiences of the blockade uh, in particular, which kind of was a, a recurring theme with some of these older teachers, you know, how, kind of how, how people coped, uh, how they cooked, where they got their food from, uh, how difficult it was to live 
in those in those years. Um, those were kind of stories they would you know retell, or then obviously also going back to the to the war, warning us of picking up ammunition when we go playing in, in the forests or in abandoned facilities of some kind. I think it's certainly in primary school, most of them were on the conservative side. In the secondary school, uh, there was a funny incident. <clears throat> uh, we we had a political comparison of the East and West German system as a topic at school. And the teacher made a point of not writing BRD, which is a kind of typical abbreviation for West Germany, Bundesrepublik Deutschland. But she would every time write out Bundesrepublik Deutschland. So we asked her, what, you know, what's the story? And she said when she was a trainee teacher, she once wrote comparison DDR-BRD onto the blackboard. And within an hour, she was called to the headmaster and he asked her, are you a communist? Because the West was very keen on not being put on an equivalent playing field of BRD, DDR. These are two equivalent states. Yeah. So the very conservative headmaster kind of that, that raised an immediate alarm. He kind of had to challenge her. And um, uh, our music teacher, by contrast, if I look at it retrospectively, he kind of taught us a lot of Russian songs, which is a kind of a weird thing to happen in West Berlin. At the time, I never remarked it, but kind of now whenever I hear something Cold War related or, or Russian, I was like, oh, hold on, we had that at school. And um, you you kind of wonder, you know, was there was there was there an element of kind of being on the more on the Russian side? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when when you weren't at school, what what did you do in your uh, spare time? There was a lot to do in Berlin. There there were excellent facilities, uh, sports wise, uh, which of course for for a young boy is uh, is something great. You had a uh, leisure facilities, but there were also the great forests. I mean, yes, we were a walled-in city. We're kind of an open prison, if you if you would like to put it like that. But in reality, it's a huge green city with forests and lakes, and uh, as I'm sure you have visited many times. So uh, there's a lot to do. Uh, I, I fenced uh, competitively uh, already at a pretty young age. Um, and there were a lot of opportunities to uh, immerse yourself in culture. You could go to museums for free. Uh, there were a lot of museums in the West, now not so much anymore. Um, you could go to the Berlin Philharmonic if you wanted to for eight marks, if you were a pupil in a Berlin school. Um, and it was just a, you know, a big playground in a way. So was the city, I know, I know that the Allied forces were quite heavily subsidised, so was there a lot of subsidies coming in to, you know, that benefited the West German, sorry, the, the West Berliners? Yes, definitely. Um, even, so when I had my first job, and this was already after the wall had fallen, uh, that must have been 92 or something, and, you know, I was just cutting off tickets for people entering the planetarium. And I still got a 4% top-up on my pay, paid for by the West German government. And that used to be 8% when the wall was still there. 
that everybody, every working Berliner would get on top of their salary to make Berlin an attractive place for people to live in. Uh, you had laws that would prohibit until 1987 um, the raising of rents in inner city uh, West Berlin. Downside of that was the, the real estate was in really bad condition. So the, the bullet holes was not just a function of Uh, the state not wanting to renovate things, but also landlords had no incentive to renovate things because rents were heavily regulated. But uh, that allowed a kind of um, freedom that attracted many people from West Germany. And, and in fact, uh, when the wall came down, the, the, the population of West Berlin was not in the majority born West Berliners. There were a lot of people who'd come from Western Germany. Also, of course, uh, the, the appeal of not having to go to the army, mm -hmm. uh, which became quite a concern for us pretty quickly when the wall fell. So I think from 1990 onwards, we kind of felt a little bit that our birthright of not having to go to the army was robbed um, by the reunification. Um, and there were... Many small things that, that were done in order to make living in West Berlin more attractive or relieve life in West Berlin. So uh, pubs didn't have to close, unlike West Germany. They could be open all night. Um, telephone calls within uh, Berlin were very cheap uh, compared to, to West Germany. So there, there were a lot of of freebies available for both for children and for adults right right and you know as, as a child did you you know go to the the movies a lot or read books well there's mostly television of course mm -hmm. um uh, i still remember even primary school watching my first bond and the next day the the teacher was trying to find out who watched the bond film she, she kind of made everybody confess that <laughs> they were allowed to, to watch the Bond film that she wrote to all our parents telling us it's not suitable for for children to watch, oh, no. uh, what, to watch what, Jane Bond. What age Bond were film. you when you watched that? That must have been 11, I think. Oh, yeah. Okay. 11, yeah. Um, and, I mean, everybody did. So um, it was kind of the thing to do. Uh, but there were many... TV programs about espionage. Um, it, it was always in the back of your mind. You saw news coverage of spy exchanges. Um, it was kind of, you did feel you were in the spy capital of the world. And you did feel you were very much at the center of the Cold War. So even as children, we would kind of discuss well, you know, what would be the siren signal if there was a nuclear attack or how long would it take for the Soviet missiles to arrive and, and, and all that. Macabre, almost absurd thoughts, really. Yeah. And also, I mean, you must have seen quite regularly, you know, the Allied personnel around the city as well. Yeah, so uh, most weekends, my friends and I, we kind of took the bicycles and went to the Grunewald. And you had obviously the Teufelsberg towering very high, but that was... Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people 
who lived and experienced the Cold War um, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. You know, that, not, that was not such an attractive destination because it was actually patrolled. But the um, Allies did have some smaller facilities in the Grunewald as well, you know, antenna arrays and stuff. And there were these barbed wire fences and it said, uh, you're not allowed to take notes, photographs, or uh, draw pictures on penalty. It was some absurd amount of money, $100,000 or imprisonment or something like mm-hmm. that. So we were we were obviously kind of tempted by that, and, I, and we did sneak a compact camera once and kind of just took photos, completely meaningless, of mm-hmm. course, but just the thrill of doing the the illegal. Um, or uh, I remember another weekend uh, where it felt there were like two thousand American soldiers running and jogging and chanting like they do in these American um, American films, you know, kind of one guy chanting and the rest chanting after that. So you'd see that a lot. Um, uh, I lived in the British sector. You saw the British military police quite a bit. Um, in in the Grunewald, you also saw the Americans sometimes. Uh, and of course, if you went north, the French, in around their barracks quarters, there were a lot of French soldiers but I also knew families where there had been a, uh, a, f- a French father, for example. And how much were you aware of the, the West Berlin subculture? That really kind of settled in around 12, I suppose, when, when I had my first friend who was really into, you know, the kind of David Bowie, um, all these kind of people who flocked for the, for the music scene to Berlin. Uh, and then a little bit later, there was also a friend uh, who was extremely, uh, or had a extremely left-wing political views and who kind of went to almost subversive meetings in Kreuzberg. And it was kind of almost an RAF, uh, as in Red Army Faction, supporter. Yeah. Um, and, and, and you know, he, he would make a point of never, ever paying to use public transport. Uh, and I think he managed that through his entire time uh, at school to, to never, ever pay for the public transport. But you could, you could certainly tell that there were those elements. So there were a graffiti on the wall calling for the release of the Red Army faction prisoners, for example. Um, mm-hmm. Those kinds of things were were very present. You had the uh, the um, uh, squatting and, and uh, subsequently the removal of squatters, which is kind of a big subject. You had the and you still do to some extent the riots in Kreuzberg on the first of May uh, every year. But of course, that's um, much diminished in past years. But 
particularly in the late 80s, that was a very, um, very intense conflict. And in fact, at one point, the GDR also got involved when the West Berlin police tried to clear a squad at the border. And uh, the East German police kind of threatened the West German police for shooting the water cannon over the wall, warning them that this is the territory of the GDR. Uh, do not fire your water cannon onto the territory of the GDR. And subsequently, the last of the squatters, I think, managed to escape over the wall <laughs> and were actually given an S-Bahn ticket by the East German authorities simply on the ground of my enemy's enemies, my friend. Although, of course, the East would have never tolerated these people had they been uh, in the East. Yeah, because I, I remember there was an area near Potsdamer Platz. I think it was the Lenner Triangle. The Lenner Triangle, yes. Um, where it was GDR territory, but because of the, the wall, they the East Germans had decided not to wall that section off. Yeah, I mean, of course, I mean, the entire strip just before the wall was East Germany. So, you know, once I went near the Brandenburg Gate with a friend, we were playing right by the wall, and then suddenly an East German border guard turned up on the western side, telling us to, you know, leave the GDR, basically. And did you have any other um, ties? Because I think think you'd mentioned to me that you uh, visited uh, some friends in Kreuzberg where you could see the wall. Yes, indeed. Um, so my mum would very frequently, I'm not sure it was weekly, but for me it was very frequently, um, visit a friend and there you know, was a couple of, of ladies coming together and they'd bring their children uh, to, to Kreuzberg and um, they were having a, a kind of Sunday afternoon tea uh, meeting and we children would be playing, but from the large apartment, you could see on the back, you could see the entire East German border array. So there was first the uh, the river, and then you had a set of walls towards the west. Then you had the death strip, and then the eastern wall, which is, of course, kind of a, a much neater, uh, cleaner wall, because no graffitis, no dirt, um, cleaned regularly, I presume. That was certainly a, a, a kind of very that stuck in my mind that that part. It's not far from <clears throat> not far from Schleswig's Tor, so by the Oberbahnbrücke of that area, um, and and it felt you kind of really recognize the place a little bit when you see the you know the Smiley film, the BBC one. Uh, and now the bridge, obviously, on that is not that bridge. I think they filmed that in Manchester. But the scene in the cafe, I'm pretty sure that was filmed there because it so typically catches these kind of Turkish cafes. And I think that's another thing, that another cultural thing that came together in West Berlin at the time. You had a lot of Turkish migrants. And Kreuzberg had a completely different feel from where I was living uh, on the Kurfürstendamm. Um, which was kind of clean and, and glitzy and shops and, and nice cars. And Kreuzberg was much more uh, really basic with people. Uh, I mean, there were some nice apartments, but a lot of people lived with outside toilets, uh, had to carry up coal. Um, 
I, I remember we got a new math teacher once who moved into one of these flats when he moved to Berlin. He kind of said, oh, I had to carry up the coal five floors this morning. Um, it was a very poor and, and dirty place in parts, West Berlin. And I think also if you see kind of footage and films filmed in that period in, in Berlin, what strikes you first is really how dirty it was. And I think that's what something people get wrong in if they make if they make movies supposedly set in that period, and probably not only for Berlin, probably also for other places. Just how dirty the eighties in a way were. Yeah, it's interesting. I was uh, interviewing, um, I think it was Sabina, about her experiences of first crossing from the east into the west, and she crossed at uh, Oberbaumbrucker. And uh, she remarked on they were shocked at how dirty it was when they came over. <laughs> it's true. I mean, it, it is true. Berlin was not very keen, really, uh, at the time. And I'm, I'm, I marvel every time at how little dog dirt there is today <laughs> compared to back then, just to, to kind of give one example. Uh, so not all has, has turned worse, even though some people kind of look back nostalgically to the past. There was quite a bit of dirt and poverty going on as well. Um, and there were a lot of people whose lives were not uh, the kind of perfect Western image. But by and large, obviously, the city or the state did try to project the image of, well, this is the shop window of the West. We're showing the best we have. And equally, of course, on the Eastern side, this is the shop window of the East. And and this is the best the East has to offer. And I understand you you were you managed to visit the uh, the Reichstag before uh, Norman Foster got his hands on it. Yes, indeed. Yeah, that was exciting. That was actually during the um, uh, when Christo wrapped it. So this was after the after the wall came down, but before Norman Foster got in, it was, and, and you could still. I mean. The person who led me around and showed me the, the kind of the Russian graffiti, some of which they kept from immediately after the uh, after the uh, after Berlin was liberated uh, by the Red Army. So Russian soldiers kind of leaving their names and, and what have you, um, and and crazy to to kind of go there now because, of course, the Reichstag in those days was really at the edge of our island you know when people would play football in front of it um it was basically at the edge of a, you know an old building at the edge of a public park it was not it did not have the kind of special status it's holding today yeah, yeah no absolutely and and right up against the uh the wall there next to uh, brandenburg gate Exactly, yeah, and and really not an attractive place in in any way because it's kind of surrounded on the wall by the wall on two sides, and and there is just nothing there or was nothing there. Um, you you mentioned that you you learned later that the the Allies were eavesdropping on West Berliners and opening their mail. Yeah, that was breaking. You know, that was kind of a news item for a while. A couple of years after the wall came down, and then kind of disappeared. Nobody really questioned further what exactly was this. But I think what people don't realize is that while West Berlin did have a parliament and a mayor and so on, 
the ultimate lawmaker was still the Allied Control Council, the Alliierte Kontrollrat, and that there was simply a Kontrollrat's Gesetz that, that regulated the life of the Berliners and the Allies could, at, at their whim, change, change the law. So Berlin, West Berlin, theoretically, wasn't practiced since, uh, I think, 1949. West Berlin, theoretically, until March 1989, still had the death penalty. Uh, for offenses as trivial as, I think, theft of allied property was the least thing you could get killed for, in theory. Um, there was a legal obligation to carry ID. You know, kind of a lot of these laws are written immediately after the war where it would make sense, you know, somebody without ID should be possibly arrested to find out who this person is. But of course, in, in the 1980s, doesn't really make much sense. Anymore. Yeah, it's, it's a strange field, but I suppose that's kind of how history unfolds. You know, one, one system loses, the other wins, and the winning system doesn't really have to show its cards in terms of what it did to spy on its citizens and, 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 and find out things. I, I heard an item recently on the radio that apparently the same happened with the packages that people sent to their relatives in the East. And that there was a fear in some cases in the West that people would send secret documents or something like that to the East German spy agencies. And that uh, the, the, uh, the people who opened these packages in the West didn't put much effort in closing them again because they said, well, people will assume anyway it was the Stasi. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, that, that's interesting because I think one of my other guests mentioned that, you know, it, it, it appeared to be obvious that the, um, that the Stasi had opened packages from the West. I'm not sure whether these were sent from West Berlin or, or West Germany, but... Uh, it's interesting hearing that side of it as well. I mean, it's probably both, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if, you're, if, you're, if you're unlucky, both yeah. sides will have opened your package. Uh, on the other hand, uh, these packages were uh, an important lifeline also from a political perspective for the East German government. So um, I don't know if you've probably been to the, the East German Museum in, in East Berlin. The DDR Museum. Yeah. Uh, and, and they kind of, in one exhibit, they mentioned that apparently it was part of the five-year plan how much coffee would be sent from the West <laughs> to the East. You know, so they only needed to account for a lesser amount of coffee for the population because a certain amount would be sent by relatives from <laughs> the West. Yeah. And, and coffee was certainly, together with, with uh, fruits, Coffee was certainly one of the big items that that people wanted to have. Um, you'd also told me some interesting detail about you worked at the Red Cross, I think, after the war. But um, you know, you you learned more about some of the the preparations for uh, a second Berlin blockade. So, a major concern for the West German authorities was: what if there was a repeat of the blockade? What if the Soviets decide to close down uh, the roads, uh, waterways to Berlin and you'd have to get back to a second Berlin airlift? And the, the West German government has set itself, or the West Berlin government had set itself the objective of providing for, I think it was at least six months, 
with resources present in Berlin. Um, and, and so some of these resources were managed by the Red Cross. And even though a lot of the food and, and, and daily life supply had been given away, when it was a particularly bad winter in Russia, I think it was 1991, those supplies had been given away. There were still some supplies which the Red Cross was managing, and the Red Cross was still kind of on a Cold War footing, if mm. you will. Right. So you were told, well, you have to sign this paper. It's secret that we have these. In, the, in this case, it was some kind of beds for people to sleep on. It's secret that we have these stored at this garage in Königin Elisabethstraße. Oh, you'd and you have to know sign. That. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't think they're still there. Oh, okay, so, you're safe. So, um, not, not likely. <laughs> and and you have to kind of certify that 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 you were privy to the secret and you're not to reveal it. But then again, you weren't really privy to much. You were only privy to a very small part of it, right? And then there was a very good book, uh, "The Umstände Zwing zur Wirtschaft," which was published afterwards. And which came in a set with uh, food stamps that were held ready in case of another blockade. And it, it's incredible the amount of detail. I mean, like children's clothing to account for one year's growth of children in Berlin. Toilet paper. Uh, part of the official supply were also cows, Hi. believe it or not. Uh, which, which kind of comes in if you if you kind of look into the Chernobyl a disaster actually because that's what I actually learned for the first time that we had live cows uh, in Berlin you could buy their milk um, uh, so there were a lot of features that uh, the, the West German government or the West Berlin government had in order to cope with potential threats right another feature was the voluntary police reserves. So when the East Germans allowed the NVA, the National Folks Army, to form and to be present in uh, East Berlin, mm. the West thought, well, we can't install military because we object to military in Berlin on the eastern side and we'd be hypocritical. But they found what they call the voluntary police reserve, a kind of paramilitary police made up of volunteers who could, in theory, be called up. Uh, to to I suppose aid the Allied troops in you know in house to house combat. Yeah, if it came to that. Uh, unfortunately, that kind of became a little bit of a of a collection of slightly politically questionable people to some extent, and was dissolved in the two thousands for that reason. Um, As part of the Red Cross, did you? see any of the the bunkers and things like that or were you just restricted to these storehouses so the red cross did not really have anything to do with that until it came to it right so the red cross would be mobilized and told right you are in charge of this facility and you provide the food uh and and uh, and, and blankets or whatever uh for this bunker but i was lucky that in my red cross unit there was the lady who had the keys to all the bunkers in berlin because that was her day job. She was some kind of official of the civil defense. And all the bunkers, she just had a car, and in the car were all the keys for all the bunkers. And we did have more bunkers than the rest of West Germany in Berlin. So the coverage would not have been the same as, say, in Switzerland or, or Albania, but 
that Berlin did have a pretty good bunker coverage. Some of that was obviously known. So everybody in my school knew about the bunker and the Kudam curry, and it was in fact it was signposted, you know, in the, in the shopping mall bunker. But a lot of the underground stations, for example, hold huge bunkers. And the idea would be that if a nuclear confrontation seemed likely, these bunkers would then be made operational. So the Red Cross would put in the beds and start kind of uh, getting these bunkers up to speed so that when the alert came, people could flee into these bunkers and be safe. That that was kind of the idea uh, behind that. Thankfully, this never was put into action. And also, since that lady had all the keys and her her car didn't have any blue lights or sirens, I kind of wonder how, in a fast-developing situation, how she would have opened all these bunkers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, West Berlin is is often referred to as an island within East Germany, and obviously geographically it it was. But there were some services that had to work in conjunction with the East German authorities, weren't there? Indeed, yeah. For example, rubbish collection. So we we paid the East to take care of our rubbish, uh, and uh, there was even a special border crossing for the rubbish vans. Um, downside of that, I don't know whether that's from rubbish burning, but there was always a, a terrible smell in the winter. Yeah, I think that probably because of the coal heating going on in the east. Yeah, because they so, used that uh, uh, had, didn't they? Heating. Yeah, exactly. The brown coal, as we call it, um, and 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 they, you know, so some days cars were banned from driving. You had to have a special job. You had to be a doctor or, or a nurse or a policeman to be allowed to drive. Um, but of course, whatever measures we took on the Western side would never lift the problem that we had this Eastern uh, climatic effect. And in fact, I would say 1990 or 1991 was probably the first winter in my youth where this just didn't happen anymore for some reason the air was clear in the winter and i i couldn't believe it that you know the snow wasn't brown from whatever was in the air so you was kind of one effect you could really immediately feel so you were very you're very sensitive to the direction of the wind and the smell the city would suddenly get if the wind came from the wrong direction and I mean, our everyday life was, in a way, a symbiosis with the East, right? I mean, we watched East German television. West German television was very influenced by East German television. Uh, Sandman is a good example. I think that he was already mentioned on on some of your programs, the Sandmännchen children's TV program. So the West German television had also commissioned a Sandman program. And the East kind of started a TV program race and they came out with their Sandmann first. There was a huge pressure to come out with theirs first and theirs was much better. So I think within three months or so, the West German Sandmann had died and children just watched the East German Sandmann. So East Germany had at least one victory in the Cold War, <laughs> the Battle of the Sandmen. Exactly, yes. And, and I mean, to be fair, uh, I think... A lot of the Eastern European children's movies were just simply superior to anything 
I, I, I remember from West German television, particularly as a young child, I would say. Yeah. So they're kind of fairy tale, you know, the Czech or Polish fairy tale movies. They were just great and believable and, and well done. Yeah, I, th- I think um, I mentioned in one of the previous episodes that in the UK we had the singing ringing tree. I've never seen that. Um, which was, I, d- I only discovered ooh, about six months ago, it was produced in East Germany, and that was particularly uh, unnerving and uh, disturbing. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, no, some, some quality stuff produced. It's interesting hearing that you were watching East German TV because you sort of, you imagine that the West Germans would have just, you know, ig- ignored it as an inferior product possibly. And, and, um, so did you watch East German TV news or anything like that? No, I think the news were really not interesting on the East German side, right? I mean, it was just more, that was really more a fun item to have, to hear them say the Vorsitzende des Staatsrats der DDR and whatever. And, you know, they have to give the full title to Erich Honecker every time they mention his name. Um, that was just amusing, I would say. But they did have great educational programs. So I was always into everything English, even before we started learning it at school. And my first English lessons were actually the East German English TV program, English for You, it was called. Yeah, I've, um, I've seen a couple of episodes of those on uh, YouTube. Okay, uh, I didn't know it was on YouTube. Okay, Yeah, yeah there's a couple of episodes there, and they are... Um, quite quite fun i can't work out whether the guy who who's speaking the english is actually english he he does seem to have quite a because they had two of those there was an early one which was apparently quite communist and so on and then they had a later one which they kind of designed a little bit you know shakespeare and and yeah. just normal british life it was or... it was a later one i think and it was yeah. almost magazine program like you know they were visiting rostock and you know, okay, no, well, the, the one I remember kind of went actually to the UK. So they would, you know, on the Shakespeare thing, they would go to Stratford and Avon. Oh, wow. So. Well, hopefully somebody will put that episode up. I think that would be an interesting one. I would be really interested to see it again. Yeah. So yeah. You know, that would be a, a fun reminiscence. And in a way, that's what I meant earlier when I said there was an influence. We also had a lot of educational TV in West German television. And all of that, the East German and the West German educational television had kind of disappeared within two years after the falling of the war. So it's almost as if there was a competition to say, you know, we have the superior cultural educative program. And the moment the competition ended, the programs ended. And it was all just about, well, we want whatever gets the highest viewer numbers. Yeah, yeah. And I, I guess, you know, like when, when I speak to former East Germans, you know, in their schooling, they were told, oh, the West is really bad and, you know, there, there's nothing good over there. Was that the perspective that you were given of the East or was it more nuanced and, um, I don't know, even-handed or, or not? I think particularly the older teachers certainly had a view that, you know, the East was an evil power and the people were okay, but their government is uh, criminal and communism is evil. Um, but many people had a more nuanced view of everyday life in East Germany because, of course, 
many people, ourselves included, had relatives in the East. So, you know, we, we had the ability to compare directly. And every West Berliner uh, had the right to travel to East Berlin. So you could just go, you could just sort of go across. I think there was no point in indoctrinating us in any way mm. about the East. There was, so the, the East had a propaganda television program that was going on every week about the, the evils of the West and kind of what's wrong in the West. And there was an answer program in the West for that. There was one specific to Berlin in the earlier years, but then later on there was a German one. I think it was called Kindzeichen D. Yeah. And, and that was kind of their answer, but it was a little bit more subtle than the Eastern one. Yeah, it was the, the Eastern one called the Black Channel or something like that. Yes. Yeah. Yes, the Schwarze Kanal. So, you know, there was a little bit of that going on. And, and, and people would make references to the freedom of the city. But there was also around the, the 750th anniversary of Berlin 1987, there was a lot of um, cross-city events going on. So there was a, a kind of active attempt to, to create some kind of we're all Berliners view. Right. And of course, the West's objective was always reunification, whereas the East's objective was to keep separate. So, you know, you couldn't paint it all dark in the East. Uh, you could paint it all dark from the Eastern perspective, but from Western perspective, you always had to keep the door open to, well, we want you to come back. Yeah, yeah. And the, the, the East German perspective is quite interesting because obviously one of the lines of their national anthem was about re mentions reunification. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was almost the last thing they... I think, I think they had a beautiful anthem, and it would have been a great symbol to say, you know, we, we just take that anthem. Um, yeah. Also because it has no, no background in, in pre-war times, of course. But uh, that decision was taken differently. Yeah. Um, well, I think there were... I read somewhere there was talk of using at least one verse as part of a unified... German anthem, and it works. You could sing, you could sing the East German text to the West German melody. It, it does right. work. I tried it once, um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it didn't happen. Yeah. So, and also, yeah. I mean, the text was banned, or not banned, but nobody sang it in the East from whenever, some point in the sixties onwards. Well, that's all we had time for for this episode. If you enjoyed Sammy's story, I'm delighted to say there is more. A second episode will be coming soon where we hear about Sammy's trips into the GDR to visit his relatives. There's some great videos in the show notes, particularly one of West Berlin squatters being welcomed over the wall by East German border guards. The show notes are at coldwarconversations.com slash the word episode and the number 34. There's also some different outro music this week based on one of the subjects we discussed in the podcast. I hope you enjoy it. If you can't wait till the next episode, do join our Facebook discussion group where there's loads of Cold War information and further discussions with our guests and others. Just go to Facebook and search Cold War Conversations. We're also on Twitter at Cold War Pod. 
Lastly, if you like what you're hearing, do leave reviews with your podcast provider. It really helps to spread the word. Thank you very much for listening and supporting us. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.